Hey, I wanted to jump in here at the beginning of the episode and dedicate this conversation to the beloved mountain lion known as P-22, who died last week in San Diego. P-22 represented and represents still the importance of trying to make space, return space, and care for space for all that is more wild in our lives. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Chris Sarabia is the conservation director of the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy. He's also a dedicated and active member of many local land and conservation organizations in his home region in Southern California. His many organizational affiliations includes Gray Water Action Network, the California Native Plant Society, and Puente Latino, a grassroots nonprofit art, culture, and ecology organization serving the North Long Beach community since 2019. Chris, many listeners will remember an early conversation we had on Cultivating Place in April of 2021, when you were still the board chair of the California Native Plant Society and really striving towards the decolonizing work of that society. I am so pleased to be chatting more fully with you today about all that you cultivate in your life. Welcome back to Cultivating Place. Thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, sharing the space with you. You and I have had quite a few interactions since that last conversation. But before we get into the like many facets of how you engage in plant relationships across the whole kind of width and breadth of your life, I would love to have you sort of reintroduce yourself the, the way you introduce yourself to people. Um you know, what are the, the sort of titles you give or the descriptors you give as to who you are in this world and how that relates to plants, Chris? Yeah, uh, you know, it's always, it's it's ever-changing. Um, so, you know, I introduce myself as, as, as Chris. I'm just a, a volunteer with many groups. Um, I work with um, the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy. Uh, I'm the conservation director there, so that's my day job. But I volunteer a lot of my time with the California Native Plant Society. Uh, I, uh, I also work with Gray Water Action. Um, I also uh, hold a position with the uh, Los Rios Wetland Stewards. So I do wetland work and uh, serve a couple board positions. Uh, one of those is with uh, Puente Latino Association, uh, where I'm, I'm dedicating a lot of my energy at this moment, but also, you know, Pelicanus Radio and a couple other groups, but, uh, you know, really it's just uh, general interests uh, that I spend my time in and, you know, try to use those avenues uh, to make uh, some positive change, right, and, and collaborative change with the, the different people that are um, in those groups using their energy for greater good, for positive. Yeah. Well, and I love how all of these uh, different expressions of you in the world and where you put your energy have these sort of unifying themes of people, plants, water. Yeah. Water's a, a very strong one there, which there's something about that, that I really love the kind of the solid and the fluid and, <laughs> and the growing. So take us back just a little bit and give us a little more insight into, you know, the people and places and plants that grew you into a human for whom this kind of 
growing work would become a dominant feature in your your career, but also in your personal purpose, Chris? Well, when people ask me that, um, the conversation or the story is always different because mm. there was multiple paths that kind of led me to where I'm at. You know, I grew up in a in a area of Southeast LA that's um, you know plagued by pollution. Uh, we have multiple freeways. We had uh, uh, a lot of uh, diesel spills. Uh, you know, we're on the edge of a lot of industrial areas with Vernon and the City of Commerce, and a lot of environmental justice groups came out of that that area, right? Um, so growing up and and dealing with that pre-environmental justice groups kind of formed me in the, in a weird way. You know, I was a troubled kid. I was, you know, I was definitely uh, in uh, heading in the rotten direction, you know, as a teenager. And uh, a lot of things kind of showed themselves, uh, kind of, uh, you know, intervened in, in that path, uh, including my family, my parents. Uh, but uh, there, there was interesting things that kind of kept getting in the way of that wrong path. Uh, and I, I was lucky. I would say I was lucky. A lot of my friends weren't as lucky. Uh, you know, some are gone, some some are locked up, passed away. And so, you know, that that's one of the stories I tell sometimes. Uh, and, it, you know, it's not a it's not a happy story, right? Because uh, I lost a lot of friends along the way. But I look back at some of those opportunities I had. And those things that kind of directed me in a, another path, a positive path that led me to where I'm at now. And uh, that is the reason that that uh, I do what I do, right? To provide a lot of these opportunities that I happen to come across or whatever the reasoning, you know, was it fate or, uh, you know, divine intervention, whatever it was, I would hope that I am able to, to help in providing positive opportunities um, in that area I grew up in um, for those kids that were like me, you know? And so that's one of the stories I tell, right? Um, I obviously had connections with plants due to my um, my upbringing you know my, my family migrated here but they were farmers they were you know first generation sorry I'm first generation they were they were farming farming community um, in the middle of nowhere so they they had um, this direct connection with nature with the elements with the patterns of life going on around them they 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 lived off the land, right? They they actually had no electricity. They had no running water. Um, they were just people of the land. And so I would say that, you know, having that in my ancestry, having that in my day-to-day -day conversations at the dinner table, having little, you know, plots of, of any open space, having food on them, you know, growing sugarcane, growing tomatoes, growing nopales, um, really kind of, kind of set that up as my baseline right my backbone it kind of um gave me uh the u.s version of of what the mexican version was um but for me so it was a little more watered down but it was still there right and i can't ignore that that you know that upbringing you know my grandparents uh you know teaching me what a seed was uh you know they they played a major part in that and uh so I'd say that's the other story, right? That it's it's definitely in my blood. And so, you know, it was never a hobby for them. It was never a, a fun thing to do. It was it was survival. It was it was how you how you lived, you know. And it, you know, they were 
They were people of the land. And so they still hold that, right? They don't talk about it as openly, but because they came, they migrated north to pursue the American dream. And it's different here, right? It's it's the opposite. People people garden for fun, for a hobby, things like that. And so it's it's definitely a different approach. And I try to I bring that up, you know, not for clout or anything like that. Like I'm not I tell that story because it's the story of, of many of us that come from the Im- immigration. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things we do with our, the stories we tell is we either diminish or we uplift this idea of, of gardening and cultivating and these relationships with both food and beauty and ritual and spiritual um, that we, that we all, we find there in those relationships. And like making sure we stay out of a binary of it's either this or it's this um because all hobby gardening was born out of one generation three generations 10 generations ago somebody lived off the land and um and it came down in the culture in our own lines whatever to to what we now you know consider more of a hobby but as we know like even that hobby is so essential chris Right. Yeah. yeah. No. And, 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 you know, when I do talk to my parents, I talk about, you know, I ask them about their childhood and, and they tell me it was happy. It was happy. All that was beautiful. They, they were strong. They had this energy, you know, they played in the river there in these urban environments. We may not have that. Right. But, but we still feel that beauty that you get, you mm-hmm. know, the, these, um, it's almost unexplainable, right? And people try to articulate it in, in books and, and whatnot, but it, it we all know what, what it is, right? But it's hard to really pinpoint what it is, right? We all we feel it when we're when we put our hands in the soil or our feet when we talk to that plant or touch it. And um and my parents definitely felt that too when they were mm-hmm. when they were back there, though it was part it was just part of their life. And so if anything, they they had this amazing privilege to to be in that you know 24 7 and and uh I look back at that and you know actually when when I chose my career you know they were like why are you doing that like because to them that was something normal right they're like there's there's a there's a career in that they're like what are you talking about and when I told them it makes me happy I think they understood they understood because they they remembered that that working with the land working with nature um it brings a certain type of joy that you can't replicate in any other way i agree yeah okay so take us on that path you 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 have given us this lovely sort of spectrum of how you came to do this work you get out of high school you go on to college tell us about your career path that leads you to the professional and then we'll move into some of the more very consciously chosen adjacent work that you do right right so in in uh, southeast la some of the high schools we have out there they don't they really really didn't have much uh uh, much opportunities, right? Uh, I, I never met a college recruiter. Mm-hmm. I hear the same stories from others in that area. And so I didn't know. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I, I went to community college, poked around uh, different majors and, and paths and careers. And I, I took a geography class and uh, we did a field trip. And on that field trip, you know, we got 
we got to see a lot of different things. Um, I think one of the things we saw was the, uh, a research facility. Uh, I think it was a San Dimas research facility uh, in, in the forest. And I was blown away. I had never seen anything like that, heard of anything like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so I said, wow, like imagine, imagine doing this uh, uh, as a career, uh, getting paid to hang out in the wild and, and, and learn about nature, learn about everything going on here, the systems, and then trying to fix, you know, the wrongs we've, we've created, we, we've, we've uh, done to the world. And that's, that kind of uh, switched for me. So I decided to go into environmental science. That's great. Is that one of the moments that you would say was one of those blocks in your path from going the wrong way? Was that moment in San Dimas? That, that was one of them. Um, growing up, I would play in the river a lot and, and I loved it, but I didn't know that that was a potential career. Right. And I, I even daydreamed of just, just camping outside and hanging out, you know, in the plants and the, hanging out with the animals and the birds. And like, what's a, what a weird daydream, you know, like I'd, and I would tell my parents, and they'd be like, oh, you're, you're funny. That's, you know, I don't know what you're talking. You know, it sounds like a hobo. Um, and I was like, yeah, it does, but it sounds cool. Um, and so I had a lot of those experiences as a kid where it's like, wow, like going, you know, going up to the, the, the camp for under underprivileged kids and, and these things. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. But yeah, I still went down the wrong path because those are little samplings, right? These are little, little, uh, you know, little things sprinkled throughout my life that, you know, I remember, but, you know, once a year you do that. Right. And so I knew I enjoyed that. And then, you know, jump fast forward to being, you know, 19 years old in a community college taking, you know, $33 a unit courses where I was like trying everything out, trying to see what, what I, by what I would choose and for the rest of my life. Right. Cause that's what I was told is what you're supposed to do. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And and finding that it, it did it did uh, you know sent me on a different trajectory and I and I did stop hanging out with the gangsters um, as much right I did stop hanging out you know with the drug dealers and because I found something that I, I was totally um, passionate about and so yeah that 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 sent me on a different path and yeah. um, as I journeyed on that path uh, opportunities kept showing themselves. This is Cultivating Place. This week, we're in conversation with restoration and community-based ecologist Chris Sarabia, Conservation Director of the Palos Verdes Land Conservancy. We'll be right back with more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. One of the things I love so far about this conversation with Chris is this idea that there are so many ways to tell and to feel our own stories, for better, for worse, and reevaluated over time. How many ways there are to see, hear, and understand what is meant to be, what is divine intervention, and or what is our own cultivation of story and destiny. I don't have any answers about any of these of life and our garden's biggest questions. What I do have is six full years of documenting, reflecting on, and trying to honor plant-loving people bearing witness to their lives in ongoing relationship with plants. 
the stories and narrative their gardening and cultivating tell and foretell. Sometimes possibly frustrating, painful, sometimes urgent, sometimes so slowly unfolding, sometimes very quickly precipitating, but also almost always loving and always profoundly beautiful to me. This six years so far of being in Garden Life community with all of you and your garden voices and stories is something. It is absolutely something on which we can all grow. We're back now to our conversation with restoration and community-based ecologist Chris Sarabia, Conservation Director at the Palos Verdes Land Conservancy. As we come back, Chris is sharing the germination pathways of his environmental heart and career. And I want to point out here, I want to jump in because I know I know so many listeners are either young or they're in like transition modes and it's not just that opportunities presented themselves, Chris. You saw them. You took note of them. And you were at a community college where you were trying everything on. That's so true. And you know what's interesting is all those things I tried out, I still have a passion for it to this day. You know, music, um, art, photography, you know, all these fun stuff that I was like, wow, I can, you know, this is interesting. This is interesting. But um, this really stuck with me. But if you think about it, I mean, all our lives, you know, are multifaceted, right? So it's yeah, important to yeah. be well-rounded and and try different yeah. things out. And and you're right. I I said yes to everything is kind of what what led to those opportunities, right? And yeah. and, and I so I started doing internships. You know, I, do, I started doing internships because I was still kind of lost, but I knew what stepping stones I needed to try out, and I was yeah. trying to figure out which ones um, would hold my weight. And, uh, and I tried a lot mm. of different things out, you know, environmental science is very well-rounded, um, uh, uh, you know, major. And so there was, you know, I did some air quality, uh, internships. I did some pollution internships. I did this and that. And when I, uh, I did the, uh, wetlands internship, I fell in love. I was like, Oh my God, like, what is a wetland? This is a wetland. Right. Like, what is this? Like, <laughs> This is like where I was hanging out as a kid, right, in my BMX. Right. And people are working here, you know, and it, it was kind of full circle, right, where I was like, this is what I was daydreaming about, like hanging right. out here, watching birds, you know, coyote comes by and you watch the coyote and you look at the plants and, you know, I was like, oh my God, this is cool. And I was immediately offered a job and I was like, okay, let's do this. And then um, once again, the opportunities just kind of, presented themselves uh, or I looked for them right. as you as you say um, and uh, you know became a project manager for another group and I want to stop you here so we just get a, I want to fill in a little bit of detail what would the river or rivers have been that were your friends as a as a child that like gave you some of this language and um, vocabulary for this daydream as you call it um, so the rivers uh, were there was a real hondo I don't know if you're familiar, but the Rio Hondo is a, a tributary that connects to the Los Angeles River. And actually, if you go okay. upstream, it connects to the San Gabriel. So I was uh, mm. right in the middle of this this area that was uh, 
very interesting area of uh, you know uh, colonizing. Uh, there was many Tongva yeah. villages uh, in that area, and in, in the historical, um, uh, you know, the history of that that whole region. It was a very unique area with um, because of those rivers. It was you know um, very fertile area. So yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, the Rio Hondo Valley River and the San Gabriel River and the Whittier, Whittier Narrows is right there as well. Um, yeah. And then where was your internship and and what wetland were you on when you first were like, wow, this is a job? So the the two wetlands were the Los Ritos wetlands, which is at the end of the San Gabriel River um, in Long mm. Beach. And then okay. the Golden Shore wetlands, which is at the end of the Alley River. Um, also in Long Beach. And so they both straddle Long Beach. And and so once again, full circle, I was like, wow, like I can ride, you know, or, or ride a kayak or my bike up the stream mm-hmm. and be home. And right, who, right. <laughs> who would have thought if I floated down the river, I would have ended up in these wetlands, you know, the other way. And And so it really had a connection with my youth. So you intern... And and what was the group you were interning with at this wetland experience that then led to that first job in wetlands work, Chris? So I was interning with the Los Cerritos Wetland Stewards um, with a very nice man. Okay. His, his name was Lenny Arkenstall. And I actually still work with him to this day, uh, you know, do projects with him. Um, he has a very unique story uh, where he lived across the wetlands on a boat and started to just clean him up uh, on his free time with mm. his dog. And if you look him up, I mean, he has an amazing story. And he was, he was, he's not a scientist. He's not a naturalist. He ended up, you know, obviously being one by default. But but he was just like, wow, this place is cool. Like, why is it so trashed? Oh, well, the, the river, it's at the end of the river. All the urban trash ends up here, all the drool. And so he cleaned it up. So I had this amazing mentor immediately take me on and I, I did everything. I said yes to everything. I said, he's like, we need to go get this dead, the sea lion that died up upstream. Right, let's do it. We got to, we got to get it. We got to clean it up or we got to drag it out to the ocean and let the other animals, um, you know, take care of it. We, we need to get in the muck and this nasty junk after this rainstorm, we need to get it. And I said, yes, we do. Like, this is, of course we do. This is choking out all these these plants. I don't know what these plants are, but I know they're important. And something he used as a teaching tool was he would give us raises based on how many species of animals and birds we knew. And so oh, I love that. we were like, we were we were all just like so thrilled to learn, you know, the the full names of everything around us. And it really right. made this, uh, it wasn't even about the money in the end. It was just no. like, oh my God, like, what is that? What is this species? Oh my God, did you see that least turn? And um, so it was a, definitely a, a, an exciting part of my life that I realized this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Even then, I didn't know what that meant, right? And I still to mm. this day don't mm. know what that means. No, me either. <laughs> <laughs> but I love that story of him, you know, I mean, and it might sound monetary, but it's not like the minute you said that I'm like, he just put value, he put value on 
this knowledge and this learning that translated perfectly for you all, not as a transaction, but as a, a valuing of a, of a different kind of currency that lit you up, which is such perfect positive reinforcement. Right. And he knew what he was doing because the mm -hmm. next thing he asked us to do was to give all the nature walks, right? So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't just, oh, just learn them. No, he was, he was setting us up for success. And um, all the people that I worked with then, you know, every one of them is very successful now because, because of those, you know, that, that foundation of learning our native plants and our birds and our animals and just, just about the ecosystem. And so when you say us, describe who your cohort was at that time. Uh, so at that time, I was working with uh, Eric Zahn. Um, Eric Zahn started a, a group called Tidal Influence, which still works mm -hmm. in the wetlands out there as well mm -hmm. as uh, up and down the coast doing, um, you know, dunes and different uh, riparian zones and, and habitat. Um, Taylor Parker, who uh, went on to uh, get his PhD, uh, he's teaching at Cal State Long Beach. He works for the Sierra Nevada Alliance and doing amazing work, working with, you know, the youth as well. Adrian uh, Mohan, who um, is actually my boss now, and and so she's our executive director out here at the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy, mm. and those were those were our kind of our key, you know, four because yeah. we we did a lot, we learned a lot, we did a lot of these pilot restoration projects that people look at today and 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 say, well, that was successful. Like, how did you know? How can we build off of that idea? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And we were just kids. We were just playing. We were just playing with science and doing the best we could and, and it worked out. Yeah. Okay. So that's the other thing that I wanted to establish is that you were all sort of young interns who were eager to learn and eager to work hard and also feel like the gratification of um, the purpose behind this work to your place. Definitely. Um, and we all lived locally. So it was taking care of our community. Um, and mm -hmm. there was some heavy, community components uh, uh, as part of all of that work and that is where I learned about community driven restoration that is where I learned about uh, doing outreach and how to talk to uh, an array of people you know from 8 to 80 and really learn to talk to people about why we care you know and and show them that we care because I think people they don't really care what you're doing they care if you care and if you if you yeah. if you share that or if you show it, people will listen to you and work alongside with you. And so, to this day, you know th this was what twenty years ago. So to this day, I I still am in touch with a lot of those people that came out to those volunteer days or internships uh, under us and things like that. And so already there is this beautiful layering of ecology, community and justice in, in, in different ways already as well. Okay. So keep us moving on your career path from there. You, you get your first wetlands official career job go. Right. So we're, we're, we're doing wetlands. We're doing coastal sage scrub restoration. We're doing all these projects uh, all over the city, outside of the city, on the coast, uh, on Catalina Island. I mean, anything and everything was, was part of our work and um, it was very well-rounded. You know, you learned how to, weed whack, how to drive a boat, how to save a, a pelican, uh, how, to, how to do everything possible, uh, very, very well-rounded experiences. And, and so at that time, um, 
two of my colleagues that were there, uh, Eric Zahn and Taylor Parker, started their own company uh, called Title Influence and uh, immediately hired uh, Adrian and I to lead this uh, new restoration at the Colorado Lagoon and, you know, once again, build out this community a driven restoration project there. And so the Colorado Lagoon has its own very interesting story. Um, Colorado Lagoon is in the heart of Long Beach. It is part of the Los Rios wetlands uh, wetland complex. So if you were to look at a, a, a map pre-development, that whole area was wetlands. And, you know, it, it all got paved over and filled in and, and dredged. And all these interesting things happened for the city of Long Beach to, um, to get developed, to, to, you know, to connect to other cities. Well, when all that happened, the lagoon pretty much got cut off from tidal circulation from the ocean. And because of that, it was seen as a safe place to go swimming by communities uh, that actually were more inland. More diverse communities outside of Long Beach actually would see that as a place to go. And the locals, though, understood that there was no tidal flushing going on, so they really didn't use it. And so this became this weird... Um, scenario where outsiders would come, outsiders from the city would come to the lagoon and enjoy it. Little did they know that this was one of the most polluted waterways in the state. And actually, wow, it actually uh, made a lot of those uh, bad report cards, one of the, the, the top mm-hmm. uh, worst places for water quality. But, you know, when these things would come out, the signage was not in Spanish or other languages. So people didn't know and they'd continue to come. And so, you know, we were working with Tidal Influence and another group called the Friends of the Colorado Lagoon. And we started to learn about environmental justice and that we could actually change things and make an impact working with the community. So working with those two groups, we basically created a, a policy changes within the city. Um, and this is driven by, you know, some of uh, the community members, not really us, but we were there to learn and support. And um, and that's a big win because what ended up happening is funding finally came through. Uh, the place was cleaned up of all the toxins and there were so many in there that, you know, it, it was ridiculous that people were still allowed to swim in there. Once again, the people that were swimming there were people from other communities that weren't necessarily being paid attention to. So if you look that up, you'll, 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 you'll find more. Right. But the success portion of that is that 20 years later, I just attended this two weeks ago, a channel is going to be reopened back to the ocean for this lagoon. You know, this was a 20 year battle to do this. And it finally ground, you know, the groundbreaking took place, which is amazing because this is Mm -hmm. providing habitat. This, this lagoon first off was, you know, just a typical park um, when we started with it. Now it's this thriving habitat, native plant, biodiversity, pollinator hotspot, and now it's going to have full flushing. So it's going to include the marine life uh, component as well. So, you know, this was a a very, it was the next big step for us to learn about um, these topics and see that we actually could, could make a change. And, you know, these weren't things that were, you know, unreachable, unattainable. There was things like funding and, uh, resources available, and there was a lot of people with the same mindset that we could uh, all work together for the same goal. We may not have 
the same trajectory. We may not be on the same path, but we all had very similar or same goals that we were able to come together and create change uh, for the communities. This is Cultivating Place. This week, we're in conversation with restoration and community-based ecologist Chris Sarabia, conservation director of the Palos Verdes Land Conservancy, an active volunteer with many community-based organizations, including Greywater Action Network, the California Native Plant Society, and Puente Latino. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, so thinking out loud here, in the midst of Hanukkah, post-solstice, pre-Christmas and Kwanzaa and New Year's, Chris talks a lot about opportunities, those he sees as having turned him in what he deems the right, growing direction. Those he noticed, those he said yes to, those he offers to places, to plants, to other people. And in all of this talk about opportunity, I can't help but remind myself of the garden-learned truth that our gardens, our gardening impulses, and our ongoing foregrounding and being in caring relationships with plants, these are all ongoing and outstanding opportunities for all that we might want to help nurture and grow in our own lives and in this greater world. Here's to the many opportunities in our gardens in 2023. We're back now to our conversation with Chris Sarabia, Conservation Director of the Palos Verdes Land Conservancy, an active volunteer with many community-based organizations, including the Greywater Action Network, the California Native Plant Society, and Puente Latino. As we come back, Chris is sharing the importance of the ideals of community in community-based restoration ecology. Here's what I, I've come to realize after working in, in, in this field for not, not, not as long as others, right? But, but at least uh, in the area that I, that I work in is all these um, restoration projects for, you know, ecosystem functions and, and whatnot. You know, going back to my parents, I mean, it, it, we're, we're a part of it, not apart from it, right? And so separating people from these projects was this huge mistake this yeah. it was just th- down the wrong path and you know many can can uh, come to the conclusion as to you know where that foundation is of, of that conservation goals and you know this hands-off approach and uh, only the you know the scientists and the professionals can do this and we're you know you you stay over there we're going to fence this off while we work on it um i mean imagine that you know someone comes into your community and 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 says they know what's you know what's right for the community because they're scientists and you know they get paid the big bucks and they got a phd or whatever and um and you don't know what they're doing over there and then they open it up and you're like oh that's interesting and what is it and nobody tells you what it is you know and i don't know if you know my 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 colleagues realize that or if it just came to be but but the idea of of including the community in these projects at this point, it's it's obvious that that's how it should be done because, you know, people need to take ownership of their communities to to want to 
improve them. If they don't have a connection to their community, they're not even going to come out of their homes to go enjoy it um, because they're just not a part of it. And so bringing everyone in and to the table on these projects was essential for the success. It's essential for the people to use these parks and it's essential for them to care, right? And to be the next advocates for these projects. And so we've seen that. We've seen that with this lagoon. If you go there now, at any given day, people are out there enjoying everything. And if you're, you know, with your binoculars, looking up, looking down, looking left, right, any which way, someone's going to be like, ooh, what do you see? Because they ha- they've realized that this is this amazing environmental asset in the community, you know, this urban concrete jungle. There's this beautiful place here, and it's theirs, right? And it should be theirs. And they, they need to take ownership because if we don't if we don't have a connection if we don't take ownership for these projects if we're not a part of them they're just going to fail nobody's going to use them nobody's going to understand what's going on there and so i don't know if that makes sense but i guess what the next step to all of this is is when you bring all these people to the table they're going to bring all the other issues to the table as well and so this isn't just about native plants or birds you know, this is about that environmental justice component that we just talked about, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. without bringing those people to the table, that portion of, of the project was going to be ignored. They were just going to plant and create habitat. But what about the pollution, right? What about advocates for houseless people? You know, we, we tend to see um, a lot of camps and restoration projects. Why are we missing that? Like, why are we not including those people at the table of our projects. Like this is a bigger issue, right? And so I think we we tend to be siloed in in the work yes. we do, not realizing mm. that there's opportunities for everyone and all of us to succeed as a society if if we if we all work together, right? Because we try to compartmentalize this work we're doing when when it was always holistic it was always an ecosystem we all were a part of it and so i think you know taking a step back like the community based restoration is how things used to get done way back right you know many many ancestors back and it's what we need to strive to do in the future right and um i think that's the only way to succeed and I think one of the things that strikes me as I'm listening to to what you're saying is this reminder that, you know, I am a person who says all the time, you know, plants are one of our common grounds. They're one of these um, relationships and and presences in our life that that connect all of us, no matter who we are, where we are, you know, where we come from, where we want to go. Like plants are one of these common grounds. But it doesn't just connect us in beauty and joy and ease and, you know, la la la. It connects us in our hardships too. And it's sometimes easier to be siloed, which is how dictatorships work is like, it's much more efficient. Like you can get a lot more done in in a big hurry. If you're just saying you do this, you do this, you do this. And I can't actually listen to you guys because I just have to get this done. So it's messier to have community-based restoration, but ultimately it is a much better outcome for for everyone in the ease and the joy in the the you know restoration and in in the complexity of hardship that does impact us all whether or not we pretend to be siloed 
It's it's true, and it's messier. It's a lot of work, and I was just telling someone this. I mean, the the amount of work it takes, you know, it takes twice as long. But if you really care about what you're trying to succeed at, what you, what your project is, um, the species you're trying to uh, support, um, bring back, recuperate, whatever whatever your your goal is, you, you really need to start mentoring that next generation that's going to take take over after you. And those that's where these community uh, scientists come in. That's where these these students, these interns, the neighbor, your your uncle, your grandpa. I mean, everyone, everyone needs to be there. Um, and so I get really excited when you see that that diversity of people there because you don't need that that uh, monotypic uh, idea of a, of a conservationist. You know, you need you need everyone, and it, and it's really cool when you when when everyone um, is on the same page and supports the work you're doing with them, right? And feels that ownership because in the end they start telling you what you should be doing, and you're mm-hmm. like, huh. That's interesting. I didn't think about it that way. Right. But yeah, it's um, it's definitely a lot of work, and I think that's going to be the future of, of conservation work, of restoration work, preservation work. Is it's going to have to be uh, very uh, you know intersectional, uh, very uh, holistic, and and we're going to really have to kind of snap out of it, take a step back, and um, regroup um, on how we approach things um, because that's where we're at now. Yeah, I think that one of the analogies that you can use goes right back to your daydream of the river, that a healthy river and a healthy ecosystem are one that have an enormous amount of diversity and they wind and they have tributaries and they have uh, little eddies and they have little gravel floodplains so that the fish can lay their eggs and you it is not a channelized, swift, straight line from here to there. It, 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 the slower the conveyance, the more diverse the conveyance, the healthier for all the lives involved there. And, and we know this is true of meadows and forests and, and you know, oak savannas and rivers and humans. So true. Yeah. And I, I actually, this morning I saw a, an image of that, you know, and it, it was a straight line and then it showed the actual meandering of a, of mm. a creek and the, mm. the reasoning for it, you know, and, and there's so many yeah. metaphors to even our lives. Right. Um, yes. Yes. And, and, and yeah, really, really taking that detour. You see something over there that may look interesting. Go do it. Go check it out. Uh, because mm, yeah. that's kind of how, you know, the the creeks run. They run to the left, they run to the right. Um, yeah, mm. you get these interesting uh, formations. And so it's part of that that healthy ecosystem. Yeah. So your career has gone on this wonderful, winding, restorative path that opens up not only connections, but also the knowledge embedded in, in these places, in these communities that are based, uh, that are involved in these restoration projects. When I last saw you, one of the things you shared with me was about some additional work that you do with a group called Puente and the importance to you in that being another expression of what you find so valuable in this environmental knowledge you have gained all of these years in your life and and now your career Chris would you like to share a little bit more about that and 
what it adds to your life as well as what you do with it? So that group uh, was started by one of my friends. Uh, she's a, a, a fellow master gardener. And so I met her, you know, in my master gardener training many years back. And, and uh, we kept crossing paths and realized that we had the same mindset. We had the same um, goals. And so we started building gardens together throughout the city, uh, you know, finding places, getting the resources, working with the community, all this stuff. Right. Mm. But we were just kind of doing it, you know, for fun. And so she ended up starting this, this nonprofit because she realized that, um, she was, she was already doing this work. Um, so, and, and funding wasn't as available as individuals. So she started it, um, and basically went there. What, what it does is it's a community asset. And so whatever the community needs, um, uh, we we look for the resources to um, to get it to them. So so we do a lot of art for the kids. We do a lot of food distribution for the community, for the houseless, uh, for the neighborhood, especially during COVID. We do a rental assistance information, uh, and we build gardens. Uh, we're trying to convert. Uh, uh, we are going to convert an alleyway into a garden, safe walking uh, space for the kids with the native plants and all this stuff right so a little bit of everything really whatever the community wants um we we try to bring it to them and so um as i as i started working with the, this group i realized that how important it was right and I, i've always kind of done this work on the side with mutual aid and you know running events for the community but uh you know this area of, of north long beach um it doesn't have as many resources as some of the other more privileged areas. And I realized, you know, the need was consistent. The community was, is, uh, uh, in survival mode. Um, you know, there's basically no, uh, no limited help in that community. So we realized we couldn't stop. And, you know, in a sense, I was kind of siloing myself, and doing my work, you know, on the on the peninsula, coastal sage grove work, and then going over and helping out with these projects. And I realized, why am I why am I separating this out? Like, um, so mm -hmm. I started to bring in this environmental component and realize how how it was more successful when you were meeting people at their at their table at their home, uh, meeting them halfway, meeting their needs, and not trying to bring them to yours, right? Uh, we we tend to think that that people you know should come to our restoration volunteer event. Uh, they they should come to our workshop and our Zoom and uh, and it's like, but why? Like we're not coming to their home. We're not coming to their communities to help them. We're, why why would you think that they would have to help you out um, at your project when they're just trying to survive? Um, they're trying to um, deal with you know these these inequalities that uh, you know, are handed down, uh, through society. And, and so, so started meeting them at their point at their, at their, wherever it was. And we started doing bird walks, nature walks, planting native plant gardens alongside the food gardens, um, giving away monarch, uh, plants, sorry, milkweed plants for the monarch, teaching them about monarchs, doing monarch events, art events, uh, just really walking that intersectional talk. Um, you know, bringing it to reality. And we realized how people were craving that, how people were in love with it. 
but they just were not able to do the other part that in, in, in the typical conservation world, right? Where it's like a Saturday, nine to 12 event. Like, no, people can't do that. They have kids. They have, they have so many other things that they're not able to do because they have to work overtime. They have to, you know, the, they have to this after that. So why, why would they come to your event? So let's bring the events to them and let's bring the restoration to them and let's bring the projects to them versus us thinking over here is where it's supposed to be, right? And so it kind of, you know, kind of woke me up to this, this idea where we don't have a central location, but we have projects scattered throughout and that shift and, and change uh, as people want to participate. Um, and as part of that, we're developing the Promotora program that uh, promotoras are, are uh, community advocates. Um, and it's a you know traditional system of uh, typically women. Uh, men are part of it as well, promotores. But you're a promoter and you promote health. You promote uh, information sharing, um, community sharing. You provide resources. And so a component of that now will be um, teaching people about sustainability, about native plants, about conservation, about drought. Um, sprinkling all that in there as well as a resource for when the people come to have that conversation, right? Because it's a beautiful conversation. And why are we leaving, you know, our particular Latino community out of the mix, our Cambodian community out of that mix? Why are we leaving them out of sustainability? Because we can't translate? Well, if we can't translate, why don't we uh, work with, you know, natural speakers and the community? You know, they don't have to be college kids or interns or uh, staff, right? Let's, let's just educate people and, and give them the power to be those people, be those people that are going to share that information. So, so we're working on that right now um, and a million other projects that, you know, kind of, uh, um, and, and one of the other ones I want to share is that, you know, we, we, we're mentoring, we're constantly mentoring. Um, you know, I feel like I'm young, I have all this energy, but I know I'm getting old and really we need to set up these, this next generation up because uh, Hilda at Gaitan, who started Puente and I are getting, are getting old, you know, as well as all the other members and um, not in a bad way old, right. But, but we only have so much energy um, and we can only do so many projects. So what's cool is um, Hilda taps a lot of young people that, that need, need this outlet, but can't figure out how to do it. Right. And you know, you come across right. those people all the time. Right. And, all the time. And, but what do you, you know, what do you feed them? Like, what do you give them? And so we found that we can do that because our goals are community driven. And so if the community is asking for a cleanup of the park because it's destroyed, that's what we're going to do. And you know what? We're going to tap the person that brought it up and make that person the next leader. So that's a little bit about, about Puente. When you look at because all I can keep saying over and over in my head is I'm as I'm listening to you share about this work is and that's what it means to be a gardener that's like the phrase that keeps repeating itself in my head Chris and just like your teacher did in that first internship in that wetland giving you the tools to take on your own knowledge and learn what you needed to learn to go where you were going to go you now are passing that skill on as well when you look at this arc of your your work with the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy with and I might have gotten that title a little wrong but the with uh Puente with CDLA with CNPS when you put that all together 
Is there anything else you want to add about the importance of that that spectrum for you and and how it has grown you? So, you know, a lot of people get angry when I talk about the the different groups or get confused because I mesh them all up. I, I to me it's all the same. I, I, to me it's yes. It's, you know, it's that intersectional thing. It's the it's really about trying to empower, to fix, to take care of nature, which is us, right, and 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 everything around us. And so, you know, I always talk about it, and I'm just talking about one org for one second and another org for the other. Because to me, it's all the same, and 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 it's it's just positive, right? Positive positivity, trying to create positivity in so many different ways, and doing making change in our community while we're here, right? And leaving uh, a legacy for others to to continue, you know, that we picked up from the, those before us, right? And so, I would say that that it's important um, to to work with different groups and and not be siloed and and create partnerships. And you don't have to do everything but you can do a lot with whatever it is you're into, right? Be it gardening, seed saving, you know, bird watching, health promotion, uh, blah, blah, like just on and on. And, um, I, you know, I think when, when I was in CNPS, we, we were, um, when I was serving on the board, we, we brought up this idea of partnerships so many times, you know, and, and how important that was to, not reinvent the wheel, but really work together because there's, there's that strength in numbers. And that's kind of what I see when, when I, you know, I try to work, uh, you know, all the different hats of these orgs is there's strength in numbers and bringing all those different groups together is really cool. It, it brings a smile to my face and I know it brings a smile to other people's faces. You know, when I'm tabling for CNPS at a Puente a Latino Association table, yeah. people are like, whoa, what's this? And they get so excited because they don't see that, you know, and it's the same table when I have a gray water action uh, booth and then I have some native plants on the table, right? It's all the same to me. And I, I hope people realize that too. I mean, it obviously connects, right? So why, why not connect it and why not all work together um, for the greater good for, for that real change that, that we want to see? Chris. It has been a joy to speak with you and I just thank you for your time and your just magical work in this in this world. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. It's always great to to chat and you know, I don't usually get time to just just let it all out and, and it really helps me to reflect, right, on 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 the cool stuff we're working on, right? Because we don't really get mm -hmm. a chance to just take a step back and be like, Oh yeah, like this is great. Like I really appreciate just, just spending time and, and, and chatting with you. Chris Sarabia is the conservation director of the Palos Verdes Peninsula Land Conservancy. He is a dedicated and active member of many local land, conservation, and cultural organizations in his home region of Southern California. Some of the organizations he is active with include Greywater Action Network, the California Native Plant Society, Seed LA, and Puente Latino, a grassroots nonprofit art, culture, and ecology organization serving the North Long Beach community since 2019, bringing cultural events, art programs, and community beautification projects that work towards a joyful, 
united, engaged community where people have the skills, knowledge, and leadership to gain control over the factors and decisions that shape their lives. Speaking of plants and place, this week, a garden-grown reflection on how to grow a wreath. Recently, I co-hosted a native plant wreath-making workshop as an outreach of and in support of the A-Heart Herbarium at California State University, Chico. For the gathering, I'd spent several weeks collecting glossy buckeyes, almost white buckeye branch tips that remind me of antlers, a multitude of acorn caps, and seed pods. Two days before the event, John and I collected prunings from mature cedar, redwood, California bay trees, toyon with its fat clusters of red berries, and coyote brush in full white fluffy seed on his land and garden. The day before the event, I set to work pruning all of the plants I'd held off pruning in my garden for just this holiday wreath-making. I pruned my Big Sur manzanita, my purple sage, and then some non-native but so fragrant myrtle, rosemary, scented geranium, and oreganos. The day of the event, co-hosts and friends Adrian and Colleen brought in live oak clippings, more redwood, golden cap, acorn caps, and bundles of dried native flax, seed heads, and stems. They are a beautiful dun color. As I was working at pruning back the purple sage in the pouring rain in my front sidewalk border garden, it occurred to me that the best of wreaths or any seasonally and ritually important greenery the seasons around, these items are not so much made even crafted and seen, as they are grown and better understood over time. As I detangled the widely reaching, warmly pungent branches of the purple sage from the branched fresh green of the manzanita, I had to brush off the old seed heads and falling golden leaves of the now towering and rustling large cottonwood who seeded herself in this garden about the same time that I did. I had to move the fountaining stems of the intermingled deer grass to the side, and I pulled many of the sage's square-stemmed branches, characteristic of the mint family, from the rich, dark, and moist, almost soil duff beneath the plants, where these same branches were close to rooting themselves as they made their natural spreading way. As I was intimately in touch with these, my beloved plants, I was learning more about them, about who they're growing with, about how they're growing on their own and together, where they lean into one another for support, where they shade or otherwise shelter one another, where they pull away from one another for greater air or sun, how and when their leaves shed, a few at a time yellowing and dropping down as evergreens do, or all in one seasonal fell drop, even how they feed one another and propagate themselves. I have known these plants since I put them in almost 10 years ago, and yet here I was learning more about them in the mud and the rain and the cold of a December day. 
The neighbors are no doubt very happy that I have helped reclaim some of the sidewalk for general passing by. But I am happy to know and honor my plant neighbors, those that have seated themselves here and those that I have brought here. In this way, to grow a wreath, start decades back, planting the large coniferous and deciduous trees and shrubs who, with care, in their maturity, will offer such prunings and windfall tips to form the backbone of the wreath. Then, even a few years back, plant or meet a good healthy diversity of foliage, flowering, and seeding native plants who will come together to create beauty, habitat, food, and soil for the wider community of wildlife. Then, in the immediate season, pay attention collect observations, greater understandings, and determine what excess these plants are offering out. And then circle all of this up into the wholeness of a wreath, whose body you can then lay back to rest as forage and habitat for the world in the wreath's next phase too. Each garden, each seasonal wreath grown of the world, are at their best not only symbols of the circles of time, seasons, and life itself, but they are symbols of diversity, community, and care cultivated in place, lovingly, now, before now, and over a very long time from now. Join us again next week when we end out 2022 with an eye and an ear toward lifelong learning and listening in conversation with gardeners, designers, educators, and exuberant leaders, Annie Guilfoyle and Noel Kingsbury, founders of the internationally and digitally accessible Garden Masterclass Series, expanding all of our gardening, learning opportunities, and goals for the new year. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. For everyone who has donated and supported this growing work, thank you. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.